Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast Fat Mascara here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O-L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O, soldejanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. Hello and welcome back to Wellness with Lizelle. And this week, I am so delighted to be joined by Professor of Genetics, best-selling author and leading gut guru, none other than Tim Spector. Now, in his book, The Diet Myth, Tim shared that the key to health and weight loss lies not in the latest fad diet, nor even in the simple matra of eat less, move more, but in the microbes already inside us. And only by understanding what makes our own personal microbes tick, he says, can we overcome the confusion of modern nutrition and achieve a healthy gut and a healthy body. He is, ladies and gentlemen, right here, right now to talk more on this. Welcome, Tim. However, <laughs> it's great to see you. I've heard you speak many times, and we are really so thrilled that you are coming to do this literal deep dive into our insides. Because what's fascinating about you and the fact that you are now known as the leading gut guru is that you didn't start off in kind of gastroenterology, did you? You started off on a completely different medical field, the genetics. Well, even before genetics, I was actually a, a rheumatologist, so really? dealing with uh, bones and joints, and still. Do an occasional clinic in that really? uh, in Gosh. that sphere just to keep my hand in. But um, yeah, so I've always wanted to go for the you know what I found those most exciting areas. And obviously, as a doctor, you have to have a, a speciality, so you you pick them slightly arbitrarily. And I had a very good time as a rheumatologist, and a lot of rheumatology is is talking to patients and psychology and uh, that sort of holistic mm. approach. Uh, but I was always more interested in the research than just the clinical practice. And so uh, when the research opportunities sort of started drying up in that field, I was always looking for something else. And then the twin study came along. Mm. Um, and, and that's at King's, is that because that, that's where you're based now, is it? Yes. I mean, for a few months, we were actually at uh, a small hospital called Bart's Hospital in London. And um, then I got a job at uh, St. Thomas's Hospital, uh, well, and you still have the best room. office in the whole of London because I have been there. Yes, you have the corner office on what is it like the fourth or fifth floor of St Thomas's, overlooking the Houses of Parliament, on, right on the river. 
Yes. It doesn't get any the, better, does it, really? No, the MPs get a crummy view and we get a <laughs> very nice view. They look at you view. and you look uh, Exactly, and uh, <laughs> it's one reason I've never moved, uh, is when you have a, a dream location like yeah. that uh, every day. So I've been very lucky, and because I, I set up the, the twin study, which is these 14,000 twins uh, that we've been following for 25 years, I've been able to actually follow what I think are the most exciting bits of science and sort of modify what I was interested in every five years or so, still using exactly the same design of these amazing volunteer twins from all over the country. So your twin study was set up 25 years ago. That's when you started it. That's when I started Man it, Man and yes. boy, you've been looking at twins and genetics. Yes. Uh, I sort of joke, I've only ever had one good idea in my life and that was it. But <laughs> if you're going to have one, make sure it's make a good Make sure one. it's a real cracker. <laughs> yeah. And of course, looking at genetics, feeding into microbiome, at what point did you realise that, hold on a minute, the, the twins are genetically identical? Because presumably they are identical twins. Half and half. Are they half and half? Okay. So with the ones who are genetically identical, you started to see interesting traits within their gut. How how did the whole gut thing happen? Well, obviously the first, I guess, 10 years of doing the twin studies is all about, wow, that's amazingly uh, genetic. Things like back pain and arthritis and asthma and osteoporosis and the menopause and Mm. things that you didn't think were genetic turn out to be genetic. Then really from the, the last sort of 10 years, it's been looking at why identical twins end up being quite different. Uh, they don't die of the same uh, diseases. They generally don't get the same cancers. Um, they live different times. And so you're starting to explain this rather strange quirkiness of why two identical clones would quite be so different. And for a while, I looked and saw if their, um, their genes are obviously identical, but they're there was something called epigenetics, these little um, chemicals that switch genes on and off. And I looked at that for a few years, but that wasn't a, a big explanation. But what turned out for me, the big explanation was the discovery really of this community of microbes in our gut, the gut microbiome, and the fact that twins really didn't share many of those microbes with each other. So the one big thing you, was different about identical twins were their gut microbes. And that led me really down this route to say, if, if that makes twins different, what about all of us and how, you know, they can be so crucial to so many diseases and health and our reaction to food? Because mm. when identical twins are born, am I right in saying, or when any of us are born, actually, we have no gut microbes as such at all for that instant when we pop into the world? That's right. So for practical purposes, we're, we're born sterile and the birthing process is a very careful evolutionary tool that every mammal has that ensures that it's a very messy, mucky process right. where we rub our faces against our mother's bottoms and, uh, and we're magically meant to do that. <laughs> we're, we're designed to do that. It's Amazing. meant to be exactly that. And that seeds, those microbes come from our, our mothers and the birth canal and a, a bit, you know, from all, all those orifices yeah. and get into your, uh, the, your, the baby's gut and that allows then a colony to start multiplying and you'll be able to digest the breast milk. Right. So it's really crucial um, to be able to digest breast milk properly in those first few days. Mm-hmm. And you get a lot other bits of it from the breast milk. Because um, there's colostrum to start with, isn't there, which presumably is, has that got lots of great bugs in it? They think they used to think it was sterile, but we now know that all colostrum and breast milk now has 
key microbes in it. We've got no clue how they get there. <laughs> we don't really understand it. It's kind of weird uh, that, that women are, are growing these particular microbes in their in their breast milk in order to feed the kid. And and then of course the skin of the, of the mother also is another source of microbes. And so this is the whole environment that's all mm. there in order to get the microbe kick-started right. so that um, the the infant has a functioning immune system, most importantly, mm-hmm. and also is able to digest food and grow. Right. And that's and that you can think about how important that is to evolution. Everyone's got to have have that. That's why it's so well developed. That's why it's such a key part of us. Mm. And this uh, this process makes sure that the first three years of life, you know, is that kids are totally protected, and that's why. We think that cesarean section births, for example... Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Supposing it, that happens... It all goes a bit wrong. Does it um, really? And, and is that borne out with statistics? Yeah, so the epidemiology studies now show multiple times that, on average, not every kid at all, uh, ends up being slightly fatter and slightly more allergic than uh, kids born uh, really? naturally. And that includes me, so... Um, I, and, well, you uh, are not in the slightest bit fat. But so just you, think how skinny I could be if, you, I, if I was, <laughs> was born normally. And, I, and of course, and my microbes when I was, was born didn't resemble my mother's at all. Um, I was a very premature birth. They probably resembled... Right, so you were whipped straight into an incubator, were you? Yes, um, and I was bright yellow and um, hairy. And um, wow. my microbes probably came from, you know, the random nurse that picked me up. Gosh. Uh, or the microbes from the plastic so what, and incubator. So are people aware of that now? If you have a cesarean section, do you do, do the babies get swabbed with the mother's like vaginal fluids or is there a process in place now to make that happen? No, it's uh, there are some Scandinavian hospitals where they do that routinely. Mm-hmm. But in this country and in the US, it's frowned upon. No way. Should we yes. be asking for it as women if there are you know, pregnant mums listening or grandmums? Is that something that we should be pushing for, do you think? I think you should have that discussion with your doctors, but mm. there's there's always a group of doctors that worry about doing some harm. So there are yeah, no but come on, that's what you're supposed to be doing. Surely it's exactly that's the natural. Way you're but there was a, a baby. there were a group of microbiologists who wrote in the BMJ a couple of years ago that this was terribly dangerous because <gasps> you could be passing on infection from the mother to right. the baby. Although that's what normally happens. They were worried about. <laughs> streptococcus and other things like this so there is a there's a lot of resistance in the medical world to doing things that are more natural Mm -hmm. particularly if you're sort of having someone intervene because it's not you know someone's got to actually do the swabbing and take responsibility for it and you end up with this whole thing so but the jury is still out about how useful it is or or whether it the swabbing the artificial work actually works although a lot of my colleagues in the field you know themselves would practice it right but it it, the studies are not yet convincing Mm -hmm. that that's what you want to do and there are some some mothers you wouldn't necessarily want their microbes (laughs) you know so okay that you know if you're very sick or you've got other problems you may actually be quite happy with uh the nurse's skin microbes and of course breast and breastfeeding also makes up for it as well so um the real problem is uh, mothers who don't breastfeed and have a cesarean section that's a sort of double whammy, and that's people are starting to think about probiotics and other things mm, for those kind of conditions. So, but it's it, you know we didn't know any of this sort of five years ago, 
Uh, it must be really so, exciting to be at such the forefront of so many things because I think what triggered my interest in gut health is that every medic I spoke to from every area of medicine, whether we were talking to, you know, cancer, you know, oncologists or people, you know, looking at rheumatoid arthritis or Parkinson's or brain activity, mental health specialists, dermatologists looking at skin, you know, everything seems to lead back to the gut somehow. It is. And it is super exciting because it's like we've discovered a totally new organ in our bodies. Um, imagine, you know, you didn't know the liver existed and you suddenly said, gosh, it does all these interesting things and detoxifying this. And, you know, it's quite hard to live without a liver. So basically, that's really what we're understanding now. It's a bit like going back to the Middle Ages and, you know, suddenly making it about how which way the how blood goes around the body, you know, mm -hmm. Harvey's discovery. So and it makes you look at everything in a different way mm. and it 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 starts lots of things start to fall into place this whole mm -hmm. idea of gut feelings and um, yes the emotions you know and how your 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 gut tenses up when you're stressed or you, you know you, your toilet habit does reflect your mental state yeah suddenly all these things start to uh, make a lot of sense once you realize that we have to start to deal with a whole new organ there and that this is a chemical factory we're dealing with. People just think of them as bugs. We're talking about 100 trillion microbes here, um, mainly bacteria, but also viruses and fungi and little parasites. But all together, what they're doing is they're producing thousands of chemicals uh, every minute of the day that are interacting with our body, that get send signals to our brain, that keep our immune system intact, that uh, feed the cells lining our guts, that have effects not only breaking down all our foods, but also how we interact with all our medicines. Mm. Uh, they think currently that about three quarters of all the medicines we take are interacting with our particular gut microbes, which determine well how well they work or how quickly they're cleared from the system. And once you realise that, and you realise that actually everybody has a unique set of microbes, yeah. it explains so much, you know, all these things, you know, why does alcohol have a different effect on me than someone sure. else? Why does paracetamol work for some people and not others? Yeah, and not others. Why do antidepressants work in some and not others? Yeah. And you just suddenly think, oh, wow, you know, and why do some diets work in some people and not others? So it suddenly all falls into place mm. when you realise that we have this amazing individuality. We now you know, are able to understand it. We can measure it. Mm. And... You know, it's just the tip of the iceberg we're seeing of what it all, yeah. how clever this system is. Yeah, because your book was mm. was the diet myth. So was that really based on that? The fact that there is no one size fits all for for eating, and that we need to listen or be aware of what our microbes are doing in order for us to be able to lose weight effectively. More or less, I mean, it was a very the title was a general one, really to say that most of what we know about nutrition is misinformed uh, not all of it but certainly a large part of mm. uh, that nutritional advice uh, which is based on a very sort of mechanistic calories in calories out a sort of furnace type you know physicists have sort of worked out that we're just this giant tube that stuff goes in and out and we just got to measure it properly yeah uh, count the calories in one end and you just have your acti watch the other end and you'll be perfect mm. and in the book, I go through why all the evidence is showing that's rubbish. Uh, it's but that's not a, a and, pink ticket to go and eat lots of cream buns, presumably. 
Absolutely or can not. some people do that? Are there those annoying people that could just live there on are. carbs? There are, and we come across them all the time. Um, but they're certainly the minority of our population, right. and uh, you're taking a big risk if you just uh, gamble on you being that person. Uh, but, you know, most of us, uh, when you were young, you know, felt we were that person. Yeah. Um, but what this is really showing is that if once it's changing the paradigm and it's explaining a lot of these reasons that some people do better on some diets than others. Mm. Um, this idea that you know all women have two thousand calories as their um, yeah. optimal level, and if they go just below that for long term, they'll lose weight, is proven to be nonsense. Really, that yes. you know that might be in some experimental situations an average, right? But no one's actually considered the individual differences between people or the fact that you know on identical calorie diets uh, people on high fat or mm. uh, high carb will have very different responses yeah yeah because the way we react to foods we're understanding is far more complex than just burning it in these calorimeters as as the uh, books tell us and you know our response to exercise is different our response to temperature is different uh all kinds of extra complexities have come into this equation. And the nutrition science hasn't really kept up. It means the guidelines haven't kept up. Um, and this is really what I was exposing in that book, is that you know, exposing, A, the things that we don't know and the things we've got wrong, and that in general a lot of these things can be explained uh, by our individual gut microbiomes. And if we can understand that, we can, and we know how to treat them well, mm -hmm. these gut microbes, we can really start to improve our health in ways that, you know, uh, are long-term benefit rather than just a short-term yes. quick fix of the uh, super you know, starvation diet or the... Uh, so it's kind of look after your microbes and your, your, your microbiome and your microbes will look after you. Is that the kind of the bottom line? That's... Couldn't say it better, yes. That's it. <laughs> Excellent. Now tell me about the, the twin study, because I know that the most recent research is showing that the differences between these genetically identical pairs of identical twins is even more startling than perhaps you might have first thought. Yes, yeah, so we've just finished analysing the, the first results of this study, which is the largest nutrition study of its kind ever done. Wow. So we're talking things on a massive scale. So... We had a thousand uh, UK participants, mainly twins, and we also had a hundred volunteers from Boston, and they were at the Mass General, uh, one in hospital, um, Harvard, and uh, the others here were at St Thomas's Hospital, and everybody came in for a day, and they had a, an intensive clinic visit where blood was taken ten times during the day, and they were all given. To a high fat, high carb breakfast, and then a normal carb and fat lunch at exactly the same time in precise uh, conditions. Mm -hmm. And we measured their responses in terms of the insulin, the glucose, and the fats, and a whole level of other chemicals. And then they went home for two weeks, given a glucose monitor to put on these new technology machines that record every minute of the day for two weeks, amazing, amazing. and yeah. you can get your result on your phone. 
and they were also instructed how to jab their fingers so we can tell what their their fats were doing after fatty meals. Fing- fingerprint blood test. Yes. Instant. Mm. Uh, and they also had wearables to look at the effect of exercise and sleep. Mm-hmm. And they were logging all their foods with um, this app that we've been developing with this company called yeah. Zoe. Right. And this allowed to take pictures of their foods and relay them. We were talking to a nutritionist in real time. So it was the most well-performed and most compliant study mm. I've ever seen because 95% of people actually did this for uh, the two-week period. How which if fascinating. If anyone's done, listening done a diet study, yeah. they'll know how difficult that is. Yeah. And what we showed was, firstly, the enormous variation between individuals. Yes, we saw the average, which is what is reported in the medical press about mm-hmm. how quickly your sugars go up after a standard amount of carbohydrate and, and your uh, fats, etc., which normally are six or seven hours later. But there was about an eightfold difference between people, normal people, in how they responded. And so you suddenly realise when you look at these graphs, there's no such thing really as average. Your chance of being average is actually very slim. Right. And so when your doctor says, okay, your levels are above or below average, well, you know, what is that really? Yeah. It's becomes slightly meaningless. And the second thing we we showed is that there was very little genetic component. So I know there are lots of people out there saying genes are important, and Mm. I used to be one of them. Right. uh, Yes, no, we've had people sitting here talking about it. Yeah. Um, And genes certainly have an important role in many diseases, and Mm -hmm. I'm not dismissing them. And identical twins are nearly most similar for all these all these diseases in some way, but unlike uh, some traits, your response to foods was hardly genetic at all. So less than 30% sugar Mm. um, changes was genetic and less than 10% for fat and insulin. That's extraordinary. So that means that really if you, you know, if you look at your ancestry and, you know, perhaps you see a whole tranche of, you know, very heavily set people and you're thinking, is that going to be me? Am I predetermined to to look like that and to have those kind of characteristics physically? You're saying from your research that that's not necessarily the case, that you have the power or the microbes have the power to transform. Yes. I mean, what it's showing is is that genes aren't that important. Therefore, by definition, the environment is important Mm -hmm. and you can modify to a large extent, your environment. And a lot of that is due to diet and other other things you can do generally. But diet is predominantly the, the major yeah. factor there. But we also found other factors that influenced these differences, such as time of day you ate. You really? have the identical um, meal time. Uh, at, if you had it at breakfast or at lunch you mm. can get a different response. And most most people ended up, if they had the identical meal, they their sugars were higher in at lunchtime than they were for breakfast. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a bad thing. Right. So in general, what we want to do is to lessen the peaks. Right. So you want to have your sugar cleared out of your system quickly, the fats cleared out of your system quickly. So you want to have a nice profile that little tiny little blips, mm. but they go down quickly. Those people are clearing away the these ex, the sugars and the fats, and it's not being stored in their bodies, not being stored in their fat cells. Right. It's just being burnt off as energy. That's what we want to see. And we know that 
people who have these high peaks in both are more likely to put on weight mm -hmm. long term, have diabetes and heart disease. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beige Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O- L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Does this mean that you then, is it on average, I know we're talking about averages here, that you could have sugars for breakfast or you better have them at lunch or obviously not at all? What it means is if, if you, for, for some people, it's not every, no, for sure. the majority of people, and it tend to be more for young people, um, if you had to have your, a food you you would pick to have it at breakfast rather than later in the day. Right. If it was a sugary carb food, so you'd be better off earlier on. But but <laughs> when I've tested myself, yeah, I'm the opposite. Are you? So my if I have the same food and I was eating these standard muffins, mm. um, um, I my response got less as the day went on. Right. So you could have one for tea, but you shouldn't have it for breakfast. And so for me, it could be that I'm metabolically better. I'm someone who perhaps should skip breakfast right? and just have uh, two meals a day, as many people yeah. should. Well, that's what I'm doing, and that's what I'm hearing about for this kind of form of intermittent fasting where you have a kind of 12 to 15-hour gap between last mouthful at night and then first mouthful the next day. Is that something that is you think a general rule, or again, is it very specific to individuals? Because I'm encouraging people actually to skip breakfast and have that that fasting period, that block of time. I think it's always. I'm since doing this study, I'm very dangerous. I mean, wary <laughs> yeah. about giving general advice to everybody. Sure. Um, but I think, given that the uh, current guidelines say never skip breakfast mm. um, and carry on grazing and have your five or six meal meal periods a day, I think definitely that is not good advice for mm. most people. Mm -hmm. And I'd advise everybody to experiment. Yeah. with skipping breakfast yeah, and everybody to experiment about going on a restricted time eating and having a 14-hour fast yeah. or 
doing an occasional intermittent fast uh, once or twice a week of some kind. Yeah. Because I think they're all related and this this meal timing business is really important and how much of it is due to just the extended time, how much is is when you're eating at different times, how much is due to your own personal circadian rhythm is not clear. Mm. But what is absolutely true is that you know these standardized everyone has should have the same 2000 calories divided in at six meals time, yes is not and right and they should never skip one yeah that is proved to be complete nonsense yeah. and so that's the key message is that people need to find out what suits them yes. and it turns out about a third of people do naturally skip breakfast anyway mm-hmm. although they're told off by everybody yes. by their doctors for doing that yeah uh, who aren't keeping up with the literature yeah um so that's really the general rule. And we're hoping in our study, because we have masses of sleep data, mm. um, we have masses of um, intervals or these, these foods in our studies, and we're going to be doing more of these studies, that we will be able to unravel this. And we hope to be able to, as well as being able to predict with our studies, because the, the point of collecting all these masses of data, you know, we're talking, our study, just to give you a scale, we had to bake 32,000 muffins, <laughs> most of them coloured bright blue. And you white ask blue? Why. Uh, you can see bright blue when it hits the toilet afterwards. Oh, no. So you can see the transit so we, time. we get them to time when it when no. it goes into the toilet. Yes, that was often a bit of a shock because people had often forgotten uh, in that. But it, because your transit time is really important for your gut health and, mm-hmm. and, and for all these other... What measures. should our transit time be? What's a healthy length of time? Again, what's average? Um, you know, it's twenty-four hours is okay. Yeah, is good if it goes to sort of two to three days. That's not okay. good. Okay, but there's a wide variation of normal. Should we be going every day? Uh, yes, we should. We should yeah, be going every day. Okay. Um, I think every day or twice a day is what should, mm. people should be aiming for. And when we touched there on on the the kind of intermittent fasting or the the the, the gaps between meal times. Is that so our microbes can have a rest? Do they need to have a bit of recovery time when they're not processing food? Everything points to that direction. So most of these studies are in mice, though, um, because it's quite hard to do these studies. Mm. You can't, unfortunately, you know, um, take all these samples as as much from humans as you can from mice. Mm. Um, But it looks like our microbes change overnight. So, Do they? so even overnight, when you're just having a twelve-hour fast between eight and eight or something, different team of microbes come out, and these guys live off the lining of your gut, not food, and they end up tidying up your gut lining and keeping it nice and pure, uh, functioning well. So the, the gut wall is working That's really amazing. well, and they seem to have a really positive effect on. The body, so it's like a cleaning team coming in. Do you in need after, to have that in your window. office and uh, so, yes, yes, I mean, I'm going to be thinking about that now as I yeah. kind of stretch out the time between meals to think, right, guys, I've you know, I've got my little task force inside me cleaning up the gut. And these guys, and you know, when you look at the type, there's one called Acomancia, and it, it is also associated with um, people who have most of these mi- microbes tend to be thinner than those that don't, so they seem to have a positive effect on the rest mm. of the community. Uh, and so that's why one rationale in microbe in the microbial world for f- having fasting periods or not eating all the time is to give these guys uh, you know a change and it just changes the scenery and it's a yeah. bit tidying up gets rid of the mess maybe 
and uh, allows the whole community to to really flourish in, in a sort of normal cycle. What else can we do to encourage our Akamatsu then? Because they sound like the good guys. Um, we don't know, and there are people working on it. There's there's companies trying to put it into probiotics. I was going to say, can moment. you take it? Can you take a pill full of Akamatsu? Um, they're starting to be on the market. Mm. They're not easy to grow. Right. Um, a lot of these these particularly effective bugs um, they only like living in your bowels right. they don't like living on the in the, in the on the chemist shop and you know for, yeah, for days yeah. in, in some dry but can tube. we feed them can we nurture how, how do we create an environment where we're going to get these good bugs flourishing other than rest and sleep we don't know for sure but we think it's you know a high fiber plant diet mm-hmm. with you know good rest intervals right so is that things like inulin so in the the resistant starches Yes, I mean it's, it's a variety of these. Um, there is there's some data that berries, etc. Lots of ways in general um, to feed your microbes. Mm-hmm. So general fiber and inulin is one of the ones we know most about. Doesn't mean mm-hmm. the others don't work. Yeah, just we know most about that, and that's in the sort of family of uh, leeks and onions and garlic and um, artichokes. Right. But um, you've also got this whole other area which people don't know much about or haven't heard much about that are called polyphenols mm. um, and the ones in berries particularly these these polyphenol chemicals are uh, like n- nutrients for things like your acomancia. so you need to sort of link this variety of diverse berries for example yeah. this bright anything brightly colored generally has lots of these Plant protective chemicals, particularly purple. I've heard. That's sort of particularly purple. You know, blackberries yes. and bl- blueberries and blackberries, that kind of thing. They have the ones that stain your hands. Yes. Generally, uh, have these anthocyanins. Yeah. That are particularly good for your microbes, but I think it's the diversity that counts. There's no point just having, uh, you know, two liter smoothies of a single berry every mm. day. We don't know which is the best one, and so. I think the key is variety and yeah. seasonal and just giving, you know, different variants of the same things. Mm. And as well as berries, you've also got nuts and seeds as mm-hmm. sources of polyphenols. Um, you've got uh, coffee. Yeah, that's good news, isn't it? Yeah, it chocolate, is. dark and, chocolate. And dark chocolate, more than about 70%. Fabulous. Which rules out most uh, English chocolates. But, okay, uh, but you can still get the good dark stuff. Uh, and, yeah, and the purer it is, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know... The, it's worth paying a bit more for yeah. a stronger, uh, better, higher quality uh, chocolate. And then you've got olive oil. And I was going to ask you about that because I'm seeing more and more. High quality ones, not the low yeah, quality Extra ones. virgin has to be olive a, oil. has to be extra virgin. E-V-O-O, Evo. You see that and more and more talked about. You have to look at the label closely because in this country there's... They fool you with all kinds of trickery Tell me of about uh, it. Italian peasants collecting stuff. And, of course, this is yeah. you know, refined rubbish from anywhere. Yeah. So... So what is it about olive oil in particular then that's so beneficial? Uh, it, it has one of the highest ratings of polyphenols. So the olive skins, basically, when they're high quality, have huge numbers of protective chemicals. And we think it's that property that gives it this heart heart benefit, etc. Isn't that amazing? So it's, it is uniquely to the olive. It's not because it's a monounsaturated fat. It's because it comes from olives. That's the new thinking. I mean, mm. you know, that's why... But until we knew about the microbes, we didn't realise why these polyphenols were important. Yeah. We just call them antioxidants, which is just another way of saying we haven't got a clue what it means. 
uh, from, you just, if you're a doctor or a scientist, you just bander these words okay. around. But now we know that polyphenols are actually rocket fuel for your microbes, then it all starts to make sense mm. that you want to get these really high-quality products that comes from some plant or the seed of a, mm. the, the skin of a plant or uh, anything else. And, and you get the same things from a lot of high-quality plants. So it's not like there's only one or there's only one type of grape. Um, red wine's another good example. And this it, is great news, isn't it, really? Because it's the stuff skin. Here. <laughs> because it, all this good stuff is generally in the skin or the yeah. peel, the outside that is exposed to the elements. Yeah. That's the bit that you want most of. So Now, I want to talk to you about that because if we're talking about the skin and the outside, how important is it then to make sure that it's not coated in pesticides? Because presumably a pesticide would also be a microbicide. And would it be affecting your gut bacteria? That's a good and tricky question. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and so there's a bit of trade-off at the moment about if you take a fruit or a vegetable and you it's not organic, therefore it has uh, high levels of pesticides or herbicides. A lot of people are particularly concerned about glyphosate mm. the, uh, in Roundup, which is the world's most common herbicide. Yeah. And we're all exposed to it every single day, even if we only eat organic. Sure. We're still getting traces of it. Um, and you wash it off, but it does penetrate below the skin uh you can try and peel your peel everything and peel your grapes and do this but then you're peeling away the polyphenols then you're peeling away your polyphenols so and it doesn't always get rid of the herbicides and pesticides so and and also you're you're getting rid of a lot of fiber yeah if you do that so i think we should be eating the skin of our um, our fruits and vegetables and we should be aiming to have lower levels of these herbicides and mm. pesticides. And if you can afford it, you should be you yeah. know, buying organic because there isn't hard evidence yet, but there's some suggestive evidence that these uh, these herbicides are safe for humans, but they attack our gut microbes. And mm. so um, if you were going to take your chances, you'd say, well, there probably are if you're ingesting a lot, as many people do, uh, or if you know, you're mainly vegetarian like myself, actually mm. you end up eating more of this stuff than someone who just yeah. eats a lot of meat. Right. Uh, so it's becoming an increasing concern and there have been these, these unproven cases of um, these rare blood cancers uh, that have been related to glyphosate. Um, I don't think it's a huge problem. I think it's a very low-level problem, so mm -hmm. I don't think anyone should go get too worried about it overnight. But I think it's just one of these areas that no one's bothered researching. No. No one has said, uh, we've been using this stuff since the 1970s. Mm. It's in ev virtually every food. It's in huge levels in things like oat porridge and the breakfast. Gosh, um, the things that we're told is really healthy to eat. In certain healthy foods. Yeah. Um, and if you have it over periods of years, mm. it may have a detrimental effect on your gut microbes. So mm. there's a little bit of study in mice, but no good studies yet in humans. So are we saying then that glyphosate is disrupting the microbiome in some way? Definitely. What we don't know is quite how much. That's and really over a what scary period of time. Thing. So, mm. but this this general rule about food safety runs. That's just a good, one example yeah. of many areas where, because this is a new field, it's like a new organ. No one tests any food against. Um, these gut microbes. Maybe that will happen in the future, do you think, that as part well, of food think, standards, food safety, let's see what the impact is on gut health. I think the food companies are very 
They're not going to embrace to avoid that. that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And they'll be using all their, their lobbying power yeah. to uh, dissuade uh, governments from going down that route because that will mean extra costs for them and these yeah. uh, all these uh, ultra-cheap, ultra-processed products will mm. have that as a problem. But it it should we should be having this break because with things like the sugar tax, yep. meaning sugary beverages coming going down, Artificial sweeteners are yeah. Where do worse. you stand? Because I don't, I don't use aspartame, for example. I mean, I won't have it in the house. And I, you know, I have read some early studies on aspartame as a microbiome disruptor. I don't think there's any difference between them. So, if you're against aspartame, you have sucralose. You might be uh, really just as bad, or saccharin. And why like, is that? Don't they work in different ways, or do the microbes not differentiate? They all work in different ways, um, but. We don't understand how they work and how they interact. There are studies showing they all interact in some way with our gut microbes. And the real reason about all these, because um, aspartame and sucralose are used 50-50 around the world. Okay, mm. So some countries are all one and all the other. But all the studies show the same, that if you do a randomized trial and you take people who are taking having two cans of fizzy drinks a day mm. and you give them diet fizzy drinks instead and you follow them for a year there's no difference in their weight right and you say what, between having sucralose and aspartame or full fat sugar and no the sugar you know the sugar variety the sugar versus variety, the diet the, variety so they can't so be, what is the point well the point is they shouldn't be called diet diet anything anything that's yeah. this complete you know that's falsehood yeah and it also says well you know they're having you know, 400 calories less a day, why has that got no effect on their yeah. weight over periods of years? And the reason is it's doing something else metabolically to the body. Mm. And microbes, we think, are recognise them as some chemical and that's they're producing other chemicals to try and combat them or deal yeah. with them, and that's yeah. causing disruption to our bodies and increasing risk of having diabetes and putting on weight despite the lack of calories so it's right. another idea that we've been obsessed with calories yeah and this is a really good example of it's not just about the calories and that instead of being obsessed with cancer which is what all this stuff and there's never been any good evidence that these sweeteners cause cancer but that's what the public's worry was no one has thought about well actually you know what about our gut health and why don't they actually work uh in helping us reduce weight. Mm. So to my mind, they're the re they're really exciting areas of the future. And I, I've done my studies when I was in a metabolic chamber um, and I took a few sachets of sucralose, um, which is the other one, and I, I get a blip on my blood sugar reading. Do you really, even mm. with that? And it's supposed to be inert. Yes. So something in my body is, is recognising it. And whether it's microbes in my saliva, whether it's those in my gut or yeah. it's... Uh, something triggering in my brain, yeah. I don't know, but... Um, it's clearly having an effect. I'm very worried about the trend of increasing these sweeteners in all kinds of foods and mixed with real sugar, so you can't always tell, mixed with all kinds of packaged foods. Mm. And I, I do think we should really stop and actually do some proper research before we promote it, particularly to kids, Sure. Uh, just to get them hooked on sweet things. So the message is really any kind of sugar or sugary or sweet, we should just be weaning ourselves off or at least cutting down, whether it's sugar or whether it's a substitute. Absolutely, yes. There's absolutely no reason why we should be hyping up all these 
uh, our sensitivity to sugar. Yeah. Uh, it's only the, the food companies are going to benefit um, yeah. from this and not our, our waste. But this is something we're going to be studying in our, uh, as we expand our, yeah. our, our series of these uh, diet studies. When are we going to get this app? I mean, is this being created now? Because it sounds so fascinating to be able to get this personal insight. Because clearly that's the way ahead, isn't it? Personalised nutrition, personalised gut health. I think it is. Um, you know, it doesn't mean we throw out all dietary recommendations. And I think everyone, you know, needs to have more fibre and more plants and less mm. processed food. But, it, you know, whether fats are for you or carbs are for you, whether um, uh, you can cope with sucralose or aspartame, um, whether, you know, like me, you know, I'm much better off having an apple than a pet than a pear or a banana really, of, identical, of identical sugar, you know, of identical sugar Incredible. level. Yeah. Or, I, you know, difference, but I can have a bowl of pasta that's actually much better for me than having a small sandwich with bread in it mm. just because I react to the bread. Mm -hmm. All these things um, we're going to be able to predict um, pretty soon. We've got a, a predictive model based on the first 1,000 people of that allows a 73% um, accuracy in terms of giving you a new food to eat based on these test meals we've given you yeah. and say how you're going to react. And that's in the world of, you know, this world is pretty good. The next phase of the study is uh, doing another couple of thousand people in the US just shipping stuff to them at home. That's going to go to a sort of beta testing commercial mm. um, kit with this, with this company Zoe. And we hope that There'll be something, whether it's a beta version or an early commercial version, mm. uh, around in the early part of next year. Great. And this will be, we think, in the form of, a, you know, uh, an app on your phone. So 2020 is kind of a key milestone I think so. to it, look out for. I mean, we're going to be driven by the science. Yeah. Um, unlike a lot of these companies that claim there's a black box solution and that, yeah. you know, you just have to trust us and uh, everything will be fine. It's evolving. So... Um, you know, we're not making huge claims about what we're going to be able to do, but so far, it's you know, all our our studies are going much better than we mm. anticipate, and people love being in these studies and volunteering sure. because they can find yeah. out um, so much about themselves. And when you find it works, that's the thing. When you you just hit on the thing that makes you look better, feel better. Yes, and better. Uh, we even had an, uh, one of the volunteers in our study actually was uh, Yotamoto Lengi. Oh really? And uh, he was interested in not only the blue muffins, but yeah, uh, sure. we're waiting to see if he's got the best microbes in the business because he should have the most diverse, diverse. vegetables. <laughs> uh, if anyone's tried to do his uh, uh, follow his uh, menus with the pomegranate seeds, yeah, things, absolutely, he should be good. So yeah, so um, keep an eye on the on the on the website, mm. uh, which is joinzoe.com. Great, excellent. Um, to sign up if you want to be part of any of these studies or you know, to see how close we're getting yeah, uh, yeah. to the app. Well, I certainly will. So let's finish um, on going from the high-tech future, take a back step with some of the ancient things that we know can help, the fermented foods, the kefirs, the kombuchas. Are you a fan of these things? Absolutely. I, I didn't know anything about them uh, five years ago. <laughs> really? Uh, now I'm an expert and I actually make my own of everything. So yeah. I make not only that, you know, I make my own sourdough. I went on a kimchi course and Amazing. I make my own, my own kimchi. I do my own, my own kefir and, and kombucha. And, yeah. um, you know, just doing it 
also, I think it's something every kid should learn to do one of these things because it teaches idea. you about microbes. Yeah. You can watch it grow. It's like a little pet yes. you've got in the kitchen. Yeah, forget the Tamagotchi. And you realise yeah. that each one is slightly different and that's because the chemicals they're producing are slightly different in the yeah. environment. And you think that's what's going on inside our guts. I mm. think it's a great lesson to, to teach kids. And, of course, that's really key to the future of yeah. health is, is trying to get this education out there so mm. having some form of fermented food every day however small really um, can just be a spoonful just be a spoonful you know i have a if i'm late i have a you know a shot of kefir as i'm as i'm rushing out the house yeah sure um i just make sure that i'm having something and of course getting high quality cheese yeah. everyone can sneak that in and uh, at the end of a meal yeah you know the good stuff ideally unpasteurized raw milk is is good but all of these things, you know, and find one that works for you. you know, people have lots of different tastes and mm. um, the idea is experiment. Mm. So fermented food's great. Diversity of plants is really crucial as well. Yeah. So as many different ones. We think the magic number is 30. 30, a, a, a okay, week. 30 different varieties a, day, a week. No, I was going to say. <laughs> no, 30 <laughs> a week. 30 okay, a week 30 different it, ones. gives the optimal mm-hmm. gut diversity. and that, But that okay. can be seeds and nuts. And you know, great, um, but fun. I mean, you, you could do as a family. You could make a chart, stick it on the fridge. Yes. Check off your thirty. Write your checklist every time exactly. you have something new. I and know. you know, a bag of mixed nuts is a nice way of cheating and getting yeah. you know plenty of good stuff. Just to start. Exactly. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm always uh, finding nice ways of of getting yeah. extra diversity into my diet and try new things on a menu. You know, go yeah. out there and. When you see something, don't stick to your old favourites. Don't just go for the old, you know, my prawn cocktail right. on the menu. Just say, I haven't got a clue what that is. Let's yep, try let's it. Let's try it. And I think that's something I've really embraced since this. And uh, it's it's fantastic fun and really yeah. expanded my taste buds and hopefully my gut microbes. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I will very much hope that you'll come back because you are so fascinating to talk to. And the more I talk to you, the more I want to carry on talking to you. So... Thank you. And be my pleasure. Thank you. That is, alas, all we have time for today. But as always, you will find the details of the resources, the links, everything that Professor Tim has been talking about in today's show over on lizardwellbeing.com. You can sign up to the free newsletter for lots of gut-friendly recipes and plenty more wellbeing wisdom. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. That will mean that you get the next episode downloaded safely without you even having to make a note of it. So until the next time, go well, look after those gut bugs. Bye-bye. everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast Fat Mascara here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beige Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAS10. That's S-O-L D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off.